We're proud to be associated with Green Chili Adventure Gear because they make American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their strapping system. They've got a load of stuff you've got to see. You want tough stuff? They've got it. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Best Rest makes the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcycles. It's made in the U.S. and has a lifetime warranty. It's also the distributor for Google Tech filters in North America. The website, www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. And Max BMW Motorcycles. It's been outfitting adventure riders like you and I since 2002. They've got loads of parts and accessories online ready to ship to your door. They've got an e-rider newsletter that's free to sign up for and highly recommend it. The website, Max bmw.com that's maxbmw.com hi i'm jim martin this is adventure rider radio we had another show produced for this week but just yesterday we got word that our friend coach ramey stroud passed away over the weekend many of you know the coach from our rider skills program that we do on the show now we never had an opportunity to meet him face to face it was his voice that we knew best through our long conversations, the the times we recorded for the show and regular emails, we became pretty good friends. And it, it hasn't been all that long since we first met him. In fact, it's just all too short. It was in 2017 that Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited suggested that we contact this guy named Coach Ramey. Grant said that he had a a great story about a, a motorcycle crash he'd been in that left him paralyzed and how he overcame what the doctors said could never be done. And then he managed to travel the world with a motorcycle and sidecar outfit. Just with that snippet of information, we contacted Coach Ramey. At the time, of course, we had no idea how involved we would become with him or how involved he would become with Adventure Rider Radio. But from the, from the first time we spoke, just through even emails, just through the emails, we could tell he was a very thoughtful person because what he started off with was asking us what we needed for the interview. He was more concerned about what we needed um, than what, what he wanted. We aired that first episode of Coach Ramey's Life, and um, I remember him getting back to us and telling us that he heard from people all around the world saying it was one of the most inspiring stories they'd ever heard. He was also surprised how many of his friends already were listeners of the show that he didn't know about until he was on there. And then they said, hey, we, we heard you on the show. After getting to know him through um, that interview and, and talking afterwards with email and, and talking on the phone, we're, we're just so impressed with his knowledge and ideas for instructing motorcycles that we asked him to come on to the show to do a rider skills segment. Now, at the time, he was in South America at the Dakar supporting some riders that he coached and apparently had still had four stages to go. So he said after that, he's going to go for a few days and enjoy his, himself in the sun riding around and then he'll get back to us, which he did just as he promised. When he got back to us, he had ideas for topics. He was asking about how we approach our rider skills program. He had a lot of questions about how we do things. Just very concerned. He had a certain work work ethic that he brought to rider skills. He's very thorough. Um, matter of fact, he's the one that suggested we put the disclaimer at the start of each show so that people understand that, you know, their concepts and ideas and they're not actually full instruction like it would be if the instructor is standing there in front of you. It's a great idea. And we still do it today with all of our shows now, all of our rider skills shows. But for every episode he did with us, he'd always prepare special notes and diagrams and, and detail the, the topics. And we'd talk about it, how we're going to approach it. Just very thorough and, and very caring about how he approached this. He didn't even tell us that he had been diagnosed with cancer until the end. 
Matter of fact, until weeks ago, he'd phoned me up to, to talk about it. He'd been diagnosed in August 2017, and he was told at that time he had about a year to live. So that was before he came on the show, yet he still took the time to share his knowledge with our listeners, with you, and with us. In his uh, last weeks, we talked back and forth a bit through emails, and, and then he telephoned, as I said. And he said to me at one point, he said, I, he hoped that uh, we'd done some good work together. I think we did, but you be the judge of that with the writer's skills. He also told me that he wanted to send me a copy of his, of his lessons plans, his notes, his, his writer tips and things. He said maybe it's 50,000 words, and uh, he thought it might be a, a good reference tool for us. And I was very, very pleased, very honored, um, just at the thought that he would even offer that uh, as he, was, um, he wasn't doing so well at that point. As usual, Coach stuck to his word. Um, he sent me some of, maybe not all of his notes, but uh, a good portion of them. I'm still going through them, and um, I'm going to be doing as he asked. I'm going to be passing that information along through our writer skills programs. So on this episode, we pay tribute to a great coach and friend, Coach Ramey Stroud. And we have some snippets of audio that haven't been aired yet from Coach and I talking. And we have Coach's story from that first episode that we did with him. It's like I think when when we're born, we're given a lot of these wonderful genetic gifts. But there are a lot of people out there that when they die, the ribbon's still around those gifts. They were never opened. I see so many people that, you know, that I, I give talks or whatever, and, and they say, oh, I, I would just, I would love to do that. And then I say, well, when are you leaving? And they'd say, oh, I could never do that. And it's like, huh? Well, why do you say that? And they'd say, well, I don't have time, I've got family, I don't have money, or whatever else. And it's like, no, these are all issues that you can deal with, uh, but you don't see that happening. You gotta change your picture, you gotta change your attitude, and realize that it is possible. And every time you say, oh, I could never do that, you're just reinforcing the fact that it'll never happen. Somehow, I'd love to talk about that someday. You know, there's a lot of people that they just, they don't want to train. You know, they, oh, I know how to do that. And they just go and go and go. So a lot of times uh, at the beginning of classes, I, I got to work on motivation, you know, and, and I think I told you once I used this term WIFM, yeah. W-I-F-M, you know, and, and I got to spend a lot of time in explaining, you know, what's going to be the payoff if we do this and this and this. And then when I spend time in the classroom before we suit up and go ride, a lot of times they'll say, you know, it's, uh, classroom, why am I doing this? And uh, it, it takes a while for it to sink in that there's a mental side of motorcycling and definitely a mental side of training that's absolutely critical to improve your skills. And if you don't have a mental picture in your mind of what you're trying to do, um, you don't really know what you're doing. Yeah. You're just kind of you know, shooting in the dark. 
Well, I, I think this idea of creating a picture in your mind uh, is just so critical to being a great writer. Um, and most of the classes don't have time to create that mental picture that everybody wants to get on the bike and go ride. And, uh, you know, it's that this idea of, uh, you know, principles and maybe some physics and maybe the body mechanics and definitely the control function. You know, you're thinking about it now while you're doing it. Without that picture, you wouldn't be doing it. Sure goes along with uh, the idea of a podcast because um, when you think about it, what are we doing with our words? We're creating mental pictures. So, I mean, it's a perfect prelude to hands-on training. There's so many great chunks of information that stick with me from Coach Ramey. And one that always stands out is his explanation of elbows up. The whole episode he did on body position, I think, was incredible and something well worthwhile listening to over and over again. Here he's talking about elbows up. Well, uh, well hang on. I, I think the reason for this is, is is probably a couple of things. But but one is it just feels that, especially if you're not pulling your shoulders back and keeping an open chest like you're describing, you have a tendency to just let your elbows hang. And the other thing is, uh, and I know I mentioned this to you before, is that everyone has probably heard someone say, keep your elbows high, but no one seems to say why we're doing it. And it goes back to that same thing. If you understand why you're doing something, then the whole thing starts to make more sense. Oh, we're going to talk about that a lot. Um, first of all, though, before we go there, uh, if you're just going down the highway straight and, and it's uh, just a very relaxed position uh, and you're not doing much, there's absolutely no problem with just, you know, relax and let your arms hang down just like you, you normally do. But if you're in an off-road situation where you need to up your control on your motorcycle and be much more reactive, then you've got to get into a more athletic stance. The other thing is that we can control the bike uh, much more efficiently with our elbows up, and, and we're going to explain why here in a minute. So if we think about this range of options, I can sit relaxed with my elbows hanging down. But if I get into a situation where I need to be more aggressive, I need to get my elbows up on the plane of control as fast as I possibly can. And that's the picture in your mind. And now we're going to go to why. Okay, so if you think about, well, let's use uh, an example. I think most everybody's probably either been to a motocross course or seen pictures of it where they have this section called the whoops. And a lot of times they're, they're rollers where the bike is going up and down and up and down and up and down. And the really fast guys, they're not doing that. They're skimming across the top. Well, let's assume you're on an adventure bike and you're not going to skim. You're just going to roll up and down and up and down. Well, if you look at some of the videos from, let's say, GS Giants or the BMW MOA or some of these rallies, you'll see that the arm length between the rider and the handlebars never changes as they go through the rollers. So then if the bike pitches up on a roller, the rider's thrown back. 
and then the bike comes up over the top of the roller and goes down and the rider is pulled forward. In other words, they're not using their elbows at all to push the bike down for the downhill and to pull the bike up for the uphill. They're not pumping their arms and that's causing their upper body to get thrown all over the place. Whereas if they'll either sit or stand in a neutral position and they'll pump their arms, then all of a sudden the bike is rotating under them at the foot pegs and their head is on a straight line smooth all through the rollers. Now, I hope this is a good visualization, but if you see the video, it's kind of like one of those, oh, duh moments. Oh, duh, that's, that's a no-brainer. But people won't do it until somebody explains what to do. And then when they do, they'll never go back. The idea is that our arms often need to be very, very mobile on the bike in an off-road environment. And the way that happens is where we get our elbows up on the plane of control where they can move around easily. When the elbows are down at your side, they're kind of locked in and your range of motion is reduced dramatically. So get them up there where you can move them around and use the broad muscles of your back to help hold them up. Okay, so we've been to the shoulder. Now we're at the elbow. Let's go to the wrist. Um, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go away uh, from planning control for a minute, but I'll come back, I promise. If you think about how most people turn the throttle on, you see them roll their hand down, especially if they're going to full throttle, and there is this big giant bend between their hand and their forearm. Sometimes it's almost like 90 degrees. You whack it wide open. Well... That uh, creates a, a problem in that there are two major nerves that go through the wrist, through the carpal tunnel. And when you bend your wrist that hard, you pinch those nerves. Even if you don't go full throttle while you're going down the highway or you're going off road, if you allow that wrist to bend, you're going to be pinching those nerves to some degree or another. And the way it manifests itself is a lot of times your hands will start tingling. You know, like they're going to go to sleep or they do go to sleep. And then you kind of, you know, take a break and you shake it off and you go back to do it. Well, let's say you're on a long trip and you're going to be on the bike for days. Pretty soon you can't shake it off anymore. And you wake up at night and your wrist hurts and your hand hurts. Um, you got to change your hand position on the throttle to not pinch your nerves. And planar control will allow you to, to do that. And here's how. Now I'm back to plenty control. So when I uh, reach out to the handlebars by folding forward, if I just set my hands down on top of the grips lightly, they're generally pointed, my fingers are pointed straight ahead. But if I raise my elbows, you'll notice that the fingers start to change and point now to my number plate or for adventure riders to my headlight. Because when you raise your elbows, they're swinging outward, which is all of a sudden making your, your lower arm angled back in towards the bike. You got it. Like this big V from your shoulder to your elbow to your fingers. Now, when your fingers are pointed towards your headlight and you look down at the grip, there is a V between the web of the thumb and the pointer finger. And you want that V on the grip. 
And then if you'll keep one or two fingers out over your levers and reach down under the grip and put your thumb on your third finger, you now have a really nice hand position on the grip on both sides. Anything we do on the right, we do it on the left. And now we're going to twist the throttle differently than most people do. And we're going to do it like a screwdriver. So now with your hand in that position on the grip, if you'll just stick your thumb out and raise and lower your thumb, you're now rotating your hand around your wrist. Now, if you can't, if, if you're not on a bike, another way you can do it is just reach out and, and put your arm out in front of you and point at something. And while you're pointing, now raise your thumb and now just raise and lower your thumb and let your wrist rotate. And just like you're doing a screwdriver. And all of a sudden, you can get full throttle, from idle to full throttle, with no bend in your wrist whatsoever. But it requires you to keep your elbow up a little higher. Now, eventually, when you really get good at this hand position and this throttle control, then you don't need to raise your elbow quite as high unless you want to. But the elbow up is the way you're going to learn it. Now, did any of that come through? You got a picture in your mind? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really, really good demonstration. And obviously, you already know how, how good the position is. But this is really takes a lot of the mystery out of everything we've heard so far about keeping your elbows up. There's so many reasons why you have to keep your elbows up. And this being one of them, this completely changes the way that you work the throttle. And also, in my mind, changes the way you control the bike, because now you're not hanging on to that throttle anymore. It just seems to me that you're, you're just in so much more control. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't know. You go to YouTube and you look at some of the crash videos and, and, uh, you know, put in uh, for search term whiskey throttle. And you'll see people that are be standing up on the pegs and, and they'll hit a bump or something and get thrown back. And because they're hanging on to the grip so hard, as they're thrown back, they roll the throttle on and they aggravate the situation. It gets worse. The bike now squirts out from under them and they're going off the back. And so I, you see kids on little dirt bikes do it uh, all the way up to I've, I've got videos of guys on BMW GSs at the BMW riding school doing it. And it's like, no, it's not about the bike. It's about your hand on the grip and how you're, you're connected to the bike. Uh, that wild throttle problem is serious. And so if you can never, ever experience it, that's a good thing. And if, if all it takes is changing your hand position on the grip, then let's get it done. I think most of us would agree that goal setting is, is a really important part of life. But how many times do you get caught up in life and just sort of forget what you want or forget what your goals are? Or have you thought, I can't do it. I just can't do it. It's just too ambitious of a goal. And then you sort of pack it in. Coach Ramey Stroud spent his life chasing his goals. He started out as a young kid with a desire to become a top motorcycle racer. And then, as with all of us, you know, life gets in the way and your plans change. But Ramey would just readjust his goals to suit whatever he was after at the time. And he really had a passion for motorcycles and for racing and found a way to stay at it. And life was humming along just fine. But then... In a moment, everything changed. Ramey had a crash that left him paralyzed from the chest down. And what he decided to do with this new reality would take him down a road that few could imagine. 
Well, basically, I, we were uh, uh, indoor motocross, uh, and indoors is always a very, very tight track. And in this case, uh, it was tight track with some pretty extreme jumps, uh, a lot of whoops, a lot of tight turns. And uh, I'd done real well in the first moto, and uh, we were in the second um, later in the evening. And uh, I had gotten uh, not my best start, but I was worked my way back up to second, and I wanted to pass this guy and see if we can pull off the same kind of result like I had in the first moto. And there was, well, uh, a couple of jumps that uh, uh, I, I have to explain. In other words, sometimes you're jumping from one jump to another. It's a double. And in this case, there was something called a double-double. And I decided I wanted to go from the first to the fourth and try to pass this guy in the air. And in the process, uh, I had hit it pretty hard and go pretty high. And up near the ceiling, there was a cable. And uh, unfortunately, we hit this cable. I hit the cable and uh, came crashing down to the track. And the bike went off to the concrete and ended up... Uh, uh, breaking my helmet in four pieces and and uh, breaking my back as well and uh, punctured a lung and, and there was a long list of injuries but turns out there were some firefighter buddies in the audience uh, that were able to come out and get me stabilized and uh, by the time the ambulance got there and got me intubated uh, they were able to keep me breathing and next thing I know because uh, I'm unconscious during all this uh, I'm in the back of a pickup truck going down a dirt road in Mexico. This was a race that was in Mexico? No, this was in my head. After the crash, I'm in the hospital and I'm in and out of consciousness for a few days. And I could remember the doctors coming in and saying, Ramey, where are you? And I'd say, I'm in Mexico. And they'd say, no, no, you're in Oregon. And anyway, in and out. And what we were doing was looking for a priest to bless my bike. Now, I'm, I'm not a real religious guy, but this was a really strange kind of a thing. But eventually, uh, this guy who was driving this beat-up old truck found uh, this adobe church, came around a corner, and the next thing I know, uh, I see these big double doors, and this priest comes out and gives me the, the sign, and I wake up in the hospital. And unfortunately, when I woke up, uh, I was kind of in a different body uh, because I looked down and I couldn't feel anything I saw. I was basically paralyzed from the chest down. I could still move my arms. I could still breathe. Uh, I couldn't talk very well because I'd been intubated so long. But I mean, it was for me, it was another kind of out of body experience. How old were you? Oh, let's see. I was 56. Some, somewhere in my mid-50s, I'd have to do the math. You're 56 and you're doing Supercross. Why not? If you're physically fit and you're doing the training and you got the bike, why not? What did the doctors tell you at this point? Uh, they told me to remodel a house and buy a, a van with a ramp. And I said, whoa, 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 let's back up here a little bit. And they said, you know, the, you just, the chances of you ever walking again 
are nil. And I said, okay, what do you base that on? And they said, well, the statistics go, and I said, just interrupted them right there. And I said, so you're basing this on the average person uh, with the average rehab and the average insurance coverages, and this is your conclusion. And they said, yeah. And I said, okay, you're not going to get angry if I prove you wrong. And they said, more power to you. Bring it on. And that was the start. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You grew up in Nevada? Yes, sir. And what got you into motorcycling? Well, I, I grew up around horses. And, uh, you know, I, I love the desert and I spent a lot of time in the desert on the horses. And, and I, I started uh, doing what my family had done, learning to rodeo. So I rode uh, saddle broncs and uh, bareback horses and Bramer Bulls. And uh, I kind of figured when I got out of high school, I was going to become a rodeo cowboy and make my fortune. But um, things changed one afternoon. I had been uh, working on construction sites part time doing cleanup to earn some extra money. And the guy I was working for would come to work with a pickup truck. And in the back, there was this motorcycle. And I kept looking at the bike. And he saw me looking at the bike and he one day he came over and he said, you want to hear it? And I said, sure. So I'm standing at the back of the truck. He jumps in there, starts it up. And it was a Montessa Diablo Scrambler. I'll never forget. 250 cc's. And then didn't have an expansion chamber. It had this thing called a bluey pipe, which was like a cone muffler. And when he started that up, that thing started beating me in the chest. And I knew in that second that my life changed. And rodeo went away, and motorcycles took its place. And I've been with bikes ever since. Probably much to the dismay of your family. Oh, they <laughs> thought I was <laughs> blinking crazy. And by the time I finally graduated from high school, and I finally left, um, I left on a 400cc Norton motorcycle with a canvas bag strapped to the back and about 100 bucks in my pocket. And I was heading to Southern California, the what I thought was the racing capital of the world, uh, AMA Dis District 37. I was going to figure out how to get a competition license, and I was going to make my fortune in a different way. How do you go from a 400cc Norton to racing? Like, Was it a natural progression? You just got motorcycle magazines? Or what got you thinking about racing in particular? Well, when I, I got to Southern California, I knew that there were certain things that uh, folks were doing uh, in the professional realm. And the flat track was one, TT was one, road racing was one. And so I, I ended up at uh, Ascot Park in um, Southern California. And I started asking around. And there was this guy that I met named Ken Maley. And he was famous for making these things called hot shoes, which are metal shoes that, that you put over your boot for flat tracking. And, you, you know, you, you always put your left foot down when you're doing the left-hand turns. And so Ken kind of took me under his belt and he introduced me to a, a fellow who owned a company called Motorcycle Setups. And he gave me a part-time job uh, uh, starting to put motorcycles together. And there was a cot in the back of the warehouse and I ended up living in the warehouse for a while. And pretty soon uh, Ken introduced me to some other folks and uh, I ended up getting a, a ride for a, a small motorcycle shop called TNO Yamaha.
And um, that was the start. I just started going to all the little tracks and doing my time and taking my falls and losing my races and working my way up. When you say get a ride, what you're saying is you got sponsored. That's a racer term. Well, yeah, I it wasn't 100% sponsorship and there certainly was no money involved. I had to do a lot of work for the shop, uh, you know, in the background. But uh, it was all part of the learning experience. And I guess it's what you call paying your dues. Uh, but it, for me, it was great because all these little jobs and all these little tasks gave me a foundation that uh, helped me to be able to see a future. Um, because quite frankly, in the beginning, you, there's no picture. There's no visualization. There's this dream. But uh, there's not enough meat to it to make it a goal yet. And so these folks helped me turn my dream into a goal and then helped me be able to develop a program to meet my goal. So did you end up becoming a professional racer and making money from it and sort of making it your living? Well, that's a great question. Uh, First of all, in, in professional motorcycle racing, very few people make a living off of it. You know, I mean, maybe the top five to 10%. So what my idea was is uh, I'll just work my way up, but I'll keep my part-time job. So with, with in AMA racing back then, uh, there were three classes. There was a novice, an amateur, and a pro. And novice was limited at 250 cc's. So that's where everybody starts out. And then you make enough points, you win enough races, or you place highly, and then they bump you up to amateur. Well, at that point, then you go up into basically unlimited CCs. And for me, I had to find a new ride, a new sponsor. So uh, at that time, I went from TNO Yamaha to uh, San Pedro, California, which is also in Southern California, uh, to Century Motorcycles. And there was a a gentleman there by the name of Wild Bill Cottom, (laughs) who's a pretty famous guy, who took pity on me and he took me in and gave me a part-time job and and a partial sponsorship. And the next thing I know, I'm racing amateur. And it worked out pretty well. And ultimately, I bumped up into expert and started racing with the big boys. And it was at that point I realized how slow I was. Uh, you know, since then, I've done a lot of racing. And, and I'm, I'm going to go away from what I just said and come back to it. You can be the top racer in your local club and just be dynamite locally. But then you head off to a national event and you find yourself in the middle of the pack. The jump from local or amateur up to the top pros is a big jump. And it would have taken me years and years to ultimately become competitive and to be able to make a living at it. Well, a About that time in my life, now I'm going back to where I was with Century, I met a girl and we fell in love. And the next thing I know, I have a family to support. And so I ended up uh, uh, still with my part-time job and still with my racing, but not making enough money to feed my family and give them a good lifestyle. So ultimately, I ended up in a different profession that allowed me to keep racing. I became a firefighter. And you you continued to race? Yeah. Uh, the reason I chose uh, firefighting is we work something called platoon duty. 
24-hour shifts, which meant I only worked 11 days a month, but I was working full-time. And that left plenty of time to do bike prep and to train and to go out and race. So it was it was absolutely perfect. I had a full-time job and I had my racing career. So you're sort of continuing on, like, I guess, a semi-professional racing. And, and how did you do? Did you manage to work your way up? I actually did real well, and I was able to diversify. Um, and as I was doing all this, uh, the nature of racing changed. In the old days, we, we used to do something called TT, which was left and right hand turns uh, with at least one jump. That was that was dirt racing. And we did that in places called... Uh, like Lake Elsinore, uh, which is famous from On Any Sunday, um, Paris, uh, Southgate Speedway, Ascot Park, and so on. But ultimately, this guy named Torsten Hallman came to the United States, and he absolutely kicked our butts doing everything and changed the nature of racing in America. TT became motocross, and motocross changed the way we rode, it changed our bike setups, it changed everything. So um, I really love that kind of racing because it, it went on for hours. And I, when you get on the bike and you get set up, you don't want to do just a short moto. You want to get out there and keep working, at least I do, and enjoy it. And um, so I tend to lean towards the longer events like desert racing and motocross and not the heat race kinds of things. Now, the difference between motocross and supercross is basically that you're inside with supercross. Well, supercross is normally a very limited space, so they make the turns a lot tighter and the jumps higher. And, and it's to develop a spectator sport more, I guess, just so you can pack a bunch of people in and see the event rather than having everyone spread out and, and probably being a, um, a more attractive venue to, to get people to. Well, absolutely. And, um, also to be able to film it more easily. So is that how you ended up in Supercross then? Was it just the, the, the whole industry sort of um, moving along from motocross to Supercross? Well, not all indoor events are Supercross. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of regional events that are like Supercross, but Supercross is a branded name. Uh, so um, basically I was in a Supercross event when I crashed or a, a Supercross-like event. But I wasn't there really in a series. I was there cross-training for something called ISDE, International Six-Day Enduro. I like the longer events, so I was training for ISDE and had done a lot of things. But up here in the Northwest, during the winter months, uh, it's really tough to get out and ride because everything's so muddy or uh, snowed in. So uh, if you want to keep riding, you either get in the truck and head south or you go indoors. And so I wanted to go uh, indoors and I was there to stay fit and to keep sharp. Uh, so quite frankly, I was pushing hard in the race that I crashed in, but it was more about oh, my, my personal approach to racing and not really that I needed to win extra points. You said in this crash or, or coming up to this crash, you were trying to jump the four jumps basically in one go. Is that something that's done in a race like that? Well, it's called a quad and, uh, yeah, it, it, it's done, but not very often. Right. So it's got a name, obviously people are, are doing it there. What was the deal with the, I mean, it really doesn't have much to do with the story, I guess. What's the deal with the cable in a, in a, a setting like this? 
Well, you'd have to ask the promoter, but um, basically uh, folks didn't think anybody was going to go there. And so, uh, you know, it was just one of those things that uh, somebody like me pushed it and uh, I paid the price and that's okay. That's part of the uh, risk that you take when you race. You were about 56 at this point. Now you're in the hospital. You're told that you're, you really don't have very little chance of, of walking again. What happens next? Like when, the day that they're sort of wheeling you out, what is that like? Well, they didn't wheel me out for months. Um, I did a, a lot of uh, acute care for many weeks, and then they moved me to inpatient rehab. And the uh, thought process, I think, was a little more challenging. Nah, I know it was a lot more challenging than the physical part. Because you don't go from a life like mine to uh, needing help to wipe your butt. Uh, it was just such a dramatic change. I had to spend a lot of time to decide if life was still worth living. Um Literally, I have, I've had and have the most wonderful life. Uh, I've been able to do so many wonderful things and meet so many great people that uh, I, I almost feel like if I want more, I'm being selfish. Uh, I've had my share. And, uh, you know, these kinds of thoughts were going through my head. It's like, do I really want to go through all this rehab and deal with this body that I'm left with? Uh, or do I want to call it quits? Um, do I want to think about suicide? And so I started doing a lot of research and reading. And in Oregon, we have this thing called the Death with Dignity Act. And um, if you are uh, diagnosed with a terminal disease uh, with high levels of pain, um, then you can get doctor-assisted suicide although they don't call it suicide, they just call it uh, death with dignity. So I'm thinking about that as an option versus the rehabilitation versus what's the payoff if I do some rehabilitation, now I'm stuck in a wheelchair the rest of my life. And it took a long time for me to, you know, kick all this around and say, you know, what's, what's up? What's, what am I going to do? And uh, I think that was the part that was more difficult than the rehabilitation, the physical part of it. Did you see a future for yourself at that point? I mean, I mean, obviously this is what you're debating and anybody would be in that situation. But did you see yourself doing anything to do with what your life was about up till that point in the future? Well, my life has always had a pretty good focus in other words, I, I'm a future thinker, and the way I plan things is uh, I put them on the calendar in advance, and then I let that that date be like a magnet that pulls me into the future. And so uh, if I enter a race, then I'll back into the program uh, to get ready for that race. Well, so now I'm in the hospital, and I can't really use that process because I don't see much of a future. And I realized that that was the problem. Um, I, my thinking was screwed up. Because if, if you think about a race, 
of any kind, uh, an athletic event, you have to work real hard to get ready for it and spend money and spend time and, and make choices. And then you show up at the starting line. Um, there's no guarantee what's going to happen. All the work that you put in was just for the opportunity to begin. And so if I committed suicide or took the death with dignity option, uh, then I would never really know how the race turned out. I wouldn't know what I was capable of. I wouldn't know what rehabilitation could do. And um, so to bail out now was to give up, and I don't do that. So what's your first goal? Stand up and pee like a man. Now, I don't know if, you, if we can say that on, on the program like this, but um, I was... Just in the hospital, I was tired of looking up at everybody. And uh, at that time, I had a catheter uh, that I, I couldn't really pee in a normal way. And uh, so it it took me a long time of um, bringing my wheelchair over to the parallel bars and using upper body strength just to be able to stand up. I mean, it took me weeks and weeks and months and months just over to the parallel bars. I'm going to stand up today. I'm going to stand up today. And then when I finally did stand up, I couldn't do the second part of my goal. And I was like, oh, crap, what am I going to do now? You mean pee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that part comes later. Uh, then I realized, well, wait a minute. In desert racing, we would wear external catheters. And then uh, instead of uh, peeing into a bag, we'd just run the tube down our pants leg and out by our boot. And I, I used to kid the, you know, the guys once in a while. I'd say, you guys just tuck in behind me and I'll settle the dust for you. And uh, don't worry about those yellow spots in your goggles. Just you keep coming. But the idea was that I had already learned how to pee while holding muscle tension because you're bouncing across the desert at 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, whatever. And you got to control the bike and you got to stay focused. And then you got to relax enough to be able to pee. So I went back to those racing skills and used them in the spinal cord injury and ultimately started practicing peeing. And I was able to no longer have to use a catheter and was able to ultimately meet my goal to stand up and pee like a man. When you're going over to those parallel bars and you're trying to stand up day after day, what keeps you going? I mean, I mean, people around you must be looking at you thinking that's really nice, it's a nice effort, but they've already told you that it's probably not going to happen. Oh, that's another good question. Remember, I, I told you I'm a future thinker. So if I'm, if I'm going to do something, um, I create sort of a, a picture of it in my mind. And in, in this sense, uh, I wasn't going over to parallel bars every day. I was going to a suspension bridge in Africa. And this is a real suspension bridge, a bridge in Zulu Natal. And uh, there's a kind of a bed and breakfast kind of place by this uh, fellow who's uh, an ex-Israeli fighter pilot and and now he runs a hot air balloon service. And anyway, I was going to go see him and visit and take a balloon ride. But to get to him, I had to go across the suspension bridge. 
And so every day when I would go to the parallel bars, I was visualizing I'm going to Africa, I'm going across that bridge, and I'm going to get in that damn balloon. And so that was kind of what was going on. So when when you're visualizing and you're doing this, are, are you getting help from others? I mean, are other people there saying, you know, yeah, you can do it. We're sort of behind you. Or is this something that's all going on in your head? Well, like I said, I, I'm sort of a future thinker and I back into programs. So uh, I knew of this bridge across the the river, the suspension bridge. And I knew that I wanted to get across it to get to this uh, this beautiful little village and uh, retreat. And I wanted to take a balloon ride uh, and be able to see the savannah and the animals because when you're floating across the top of the forest, they don't really look up much and the balloon's quiet and it's just an amazing experience. So every time I would roll over to the parallel bars, I would visualize that suspension bridge and what was beyond it. So it, it was like, I'm going to Africa. And it was the dues that I had to pay to get to Africa. Uh, I did the same thing with stairs. Only then it was Machu Picchu and climbing the altar to the gods, the stairway to the altar of the gods. So I had this picture in my mind, so I didn't care much what other people were saying. I had my plan, get out of my way. That's uh, that's clearly why you are where you are and doing what you're doing. But so let's go from beyond that because I mean this these are very um, this this is very early in it. When do you get to a point where you actually have mobility um, for yourself where you don't need assistance to get around? Well, um, from standing up in the parallel bars, I went to two forearm crutches. You know the ones you. You see sometimes that they're pretty bulky. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I had to have uh, braces on my legs. And I kind of look like Forrest Gump with crutches. And it's really weird the way that rehabilitation works. At the time you're the weakest, you have to carry around the most weight. And um, so I'm trying to figure out how all this equipment works because the, the knee joints in these these braces are uh, designed, uh, well, they're copied after spacesuit knee joints. And so when you put pressure on the heel, uh, they'll lock because they think you're in the stance phase. And then as you come forward and you put pressure on the toe, then the knees will unlock and allow the knee to bend and come forward. And then they do that in an alternating sense. So uh, it took a long time just to get the braces on. Actually, I, I shouldn't call them braces. They're, they're orthotics. But I just I still keep thinking of Forrest Gump. And anyway, so you're dealing with all this technology, so you still have to have help to get all this stuff on and get it off. Um, eventually, I was able to go to smaller and smaller orthotics, and then ultimately uh, only onto my right leg. Uh, my left leg got stronger first. And then ultimately to uh, something called an AFO, uh, which is only an ankle foot orthosis. And when I got to that point, then I was pretty much self-sufficient. That took maybe almost three years. During this time, did you ever think about riding again? I was already riding by then. Uh, 
about the second year into this thing, I realized that um, uh, I wanted to get back on the bike. And I would roll my wheelchair out to the shop and, you know, my bikes would be there. And I'd, nobody was around, so I would talk to the bikes. I'd say, it's okay, don't worry, I'm coming, I'll be back. And uh, eventually I, I realized that uh, I wasn't going to be able to get back on the big bikes uh, that I had to start all over again uh, with the little bikes and, and kind of work my way back up. So um, one day I got out a, with, with the help of a young fellow that worked for me. Uh, I got out a Yamaha 125 and I had braces on both legs. And uh, Anyway, he kind of held me up and I got the braces on the foot pegs. And so I'm kind of taking a lap around the ranch and it didn't work out too well. I ended up crashing, but I was able to at least feel for a few moments what it was like to be back on a bike. It was possible. And so that that helped me create a new picture. And uh, it's that picture still evolving. So what happens next? Well, I still want to get back on a bike. And I, at that point, I think mm, I can do this. So I start rolling the wheelchair over to the bike in the shop, um, and the bikes are are on stands. And I start crawling up to see if I can get on a bike by myself. And it was pretty ugly. And I kept trying it from left and right. And and uh, in the shop, we we have a lot of static trainers. Uh, which is a totally different story, but we do a lot of static training in front of mirrors. And so I'm, I'm watching myself and I'm pretty disgusted. But I keep going. And then ultimately I'm able to work myself into a, on top of the bike. And then everything changed. I can close my eyes and I can feel clutch throttle and brake. Um, and I can kind of feel my butt in the seat. I can't quite feel my knees. And, but I'm on a bike and now I can start creating a new kind of mental picture. And pretty soon I said, I'm going to finish my race. The night I crashed, I, I had two laps left to go. And I said, I'm going to go back to that track and I'm going to finish those two laps because I've never quit a race in my life. I'm not going to start now. So I got a hold of Yamaha and I told him what I wanted to do, and there was silence. And they said, we'll call you back. And a few days later, they said, will you sign a release? And I said, sure. And they said, okay, we'll bring you a bike. So then I called the promoter uh, that, you know, put on the race and built the track and all that stuff. And I said, uh, I, I want to go back to that same arena, and I know you got a track already built, how about uh, letting me have access to the track during the day sometime? And uh, I want to finish my race. And he said, well, uh, can I call you back? And I said, sure. And he calls me back and he says, will you sign a release? <laughs> I said, sure, sure. He says, all right, then we're going to change the track around that we have to kind of match the track you were on the night you crashed. 
And I said, that would be great. So anyway, on the, uh, we picked a date. And I used that date in the future to start training to get back on a bike and go back to that track and finish my race. If you're having trouble, you, you had a lot of trouble getting yourself up onto the bike. Uh, how, do you, how do you plan to race? I mean, you have to have use of your legs, I would think. I mean, how does the whole thing pan out in your head? I don't know. I love it. I have a picture, I have a picture where I'm going. Now I got to figure out how to make it happen. So again, you set the future and then you figure, okay, what's it going to take to get there? Exactly. You back into the planning program. You back into the development. You go find the resources. Uh, you do the work. And if the work's not working, then you change it until it does work. And so, uh, I mean, the very first thing I did was I went back to the track I crashed. Um, and there was nobody there. I got access and I just went in and sat there and the lights were off and I, I had to get a hold of my emotions. And I mean, that was a really big part of it. And then I went home and I started doing the, the body mechanics, the, the individual muscles. What do I got to do? And what can I do? And so on. Anyway, so I ultimately, um, was able to get down to the point where I could use motocross boots instead of my lower leg braces. And I could use my knee braces instead of the, the braces that I was walking with. And I could dorsiflex, plantar flex my left foot enough to be able to shift gears. And I unfortunately would only have to be only capable of being able to use the front brake. Um, you know, this is a bike Yamaha's bringing, so I can't tweak it around a little bit. So uh, anyway, I, I realized that the hardest part of doing what I'm going to do is getting on the bike. So I think, all right, I'm going to make a, a compromise and I'm going to get some help getting on the bike, but I'll take care of the rest. And anyway, uh, family and friends were there and the media and a bunch of other folks and and there's cameras going and all that stuff. And I don't really see much of anything because my picture is that track. And they got the bike started for me and they got me up into the seat and they kind of gave me a push off and I went out into the parking lot and did a couple of laps and then came back into the arena and got out on the track and I'm tooling around and realizing front brake is a little bit tough in some of the loose surfaces you can push the front in a little bit so i had to kind of change my lines and ultimately i crashed on the first lap and everybody goes ooh and ah and i thought no 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 that's part of racing they came out they picked the bike up they got it started again they picked me up got me back on the seat and i learned my lesson and came around on the second lap and i'm heading to the finish line jump and uh, i had a problem i hadn't anticipated and that's my goggles were fogging up. And it seems like I was a little tearful. In that moment, my life changed. I was no longer a guy in rehab. I was just another guy trying to stay healthy. So emotionally, it was just a major, major event. And I'm really glad I did it. But your question was about 
motorcycles and what, what am I doing? I also realized that moment two wheels was done that there was just was no way after how hard I'd worked that I was going to make it back to two wheels and be able to realistically be in traffic safely. And so I had to make another mental shift, which I, I can tell you about. And that was to go to three wheels, to go to sidecars. Before we talk about three wheels, let me ask you, how do you know when to quit? I mean, because you pushed all the limits of really, I mean, let's say of a lot of people, you push those limits, you broke the barriers. But when you come to this, how do you know that that's it? Okay, that's not going to work. I'm going to have to do something else. Hmm. Well, I need to think about that for a minute. Uh, I've, I've pushed in a lot of different sports and a lot of different activities. And I, I can draw on those to answer your question. But I think the better answer comes from being a firefighter. Uh, ultimately, I, I worked my way up to apparatus operator and um, uh, at that time we called it auto fireman and I used to drive a hook and ladder truck in downtown Los Angeles and that's the one where you've got a, a guy in the back steering the rear wheels mm. and so I'm in the front seat and to my right is the captain and we rolled in on a lot of big fires and I'm I'm looking out the same window he is and he's on the radio directing equipment and making decisions that are that are truly life and death and i i'm really thinking about this a lot because i was trying to decide whether to take the captain's exam well eventually i did take the captain's exam and i moved over to the right side of the seat and i had to make those life and death decisions i see somebody hanging out a window of an apartment fire and do we try to go and save that person or can we save three people with the available resources three windows over? And I guess what I'm, I'm getting at is that sometimes life is decisions are, are really, really serious and important. But they all are based on information, on experience. And not just on emotion. And so when you start working as an athlete uh, and you get to know yourself, you you kind of get a sense of you know where your limits are. And uh, in this case, I pretty much knew that I had given it my best, that it wasn't perceived exertion, it was real world experience. But remember we talked about risk earlier? Mm -hmm. I realized that um, I could not ride a bike in traffic and stay at or below my risk tolerance level. Not only for me and myself, but for the people around me. And so I made a decision that, okay, I, I finished my race. I've proven that I can get back on two wheels. I am a two-wheel rider. But now I choose to go to three wheels. I'm not forced to. I choose to. So how do you make the change to three wheels? 
Oh, first you put your finger in your throat and go, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, uh, there well, was well, I mean, time. is it that dis- you, distasteful for you, really, going to three wheels? What, I mean, because you said you chose to. Well, okay, this is uh, back to perception and emotion. When when I was younger, you know, I'd see a sidecar and I'd think, wow, this is for real? You know, I mean, I laughed at them. I looked down on them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, most of the time I'd see somebody on a sidecar that'd be, older and in and, and some kind of funny outfit. And it was like, I just didn't get it. And then I started realizing, well, there's different kinds of sidecars and there's different kinds of people. And so I started doing my research. And this is before I made the decision to three wheels. And I found something called sidecar cross. And I started looking at these guys racing uh, sidecars. And I thought, holy crap, I know how hard those jumps are and they're doing it on that outfit with two people. And uh, I realized that, no, I've got the wrong mental picture. I got to change my picture and change my attitude and then, you know, make it work. And so once I did the mental shift and I changed my picture, then it was a totally acceptable decision. That And I didn't feel bad leaving two wheels behind with one exception. Which was? I knew you were going to (laughs) ask. We're going to take two minutes to thank a couple of sponsors that helped bring this tribute to Coach Ramey to you today. Stay with us, though, because we have more coming up in just a minute. Well, I've got a little challenge for you. Here's the website I want you to go to, www.overlandexpo.com. Click on the West link right there on the main page. You're going to see May 17 to 19, 2019 in Flagstaff, Arizona is Overland Expo West. This thing is huge. Now, my my challenge was going to be to you, I was going to say, go to that, look at the classes, the slideshows, the demonstration activities, the lessons that you can take at that event, and then tell me it's not something you want to go to. You have to go. It's the overlanding event of the year, Um, and that's in Flagstaff, Arizona, May 17 to 19, They've got the uh, Motorcycle Expedition Skills Area that was redesigned in 2018, headed up by Dragoo Adventure Training, Adventure Rider Training, rather. You've got hands-on training pavilions, classrooms, demo areas. They've even got a kids' adventure area, but they've got roundtable panels that they put on, a a film festival. I mean, there's so much going on there. Check it out, www.overlandexpo.com. And anytime you're talking with them, you get your tickets. By the way, you got to buy your tickets online. Don't forget to do that. Buy them now. Get them now before they sell out. Uh, and there's ones that are specific for motorcycling there. And by the way, when you're dealing with them, I was saying, um, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. I don't know of many hard parts that you can really beat and have them still perform like the day you got them. IMS foot pegs are one of those hard parts. And I'm talking from experience. If I wasn't impressed, I wouldn't be telling you this. Now, let's face it. They're not only almost indestructible in my experience. Well, in my experience, they have been indestructible. Um, but they're designed to do 
what they're supposed to do. And that's give you an ultimate connection with your bike. That's what they do for me for better control. They shed the mud like they were designed to do. And unlike many pegs out there, they're designed in such a way that when the pegs, when the platform gets bigger, when they've manufactured it bigger, the angle is still correct with your brake and more importantly, your shifter. That's correct. That's super important. On top of all that, they're warranted for life and they're made in the USA. www.imsproducts.com. Have a look at what they've got. Everything from their ADV pegs right on down to their rally pegs. They've got a size peg that will suit your riding style and your bike. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. That, and, and I didn't feel bad leaving two wheels behind with one exception. Which was? I knew you were going to ask. <laughs> when, when you're in, in the twisties and you're curving left and right, when you're rolling the bike, it's an amazing feeling. Um, I mean, I, I had a pilot's license for many years and, and flew uh, open cockpit planes and I could, I could roll the bike, you know, uh, roll the airplane either way. And, you know, being on the bike was very similar to flying the airplane, but better. I, I just, I was connected to the ground and I could go left and right. And it was just amazing. And that's the part that I lost. And it was a price um, that I, I had to pay in order to get back on a bike and get the wind back in my face. And so, it, again, it was a no-brainer. You know, that part of my life is done, and now I'm moving on to the next phase, whatever that is. Was it was the Spider motorcycle available then? Uh, yeah, I looked at... Um, uh, three wheelers uh, with two in front, one behind. Mm -hmm. I, I looked at trikes. Uh, I mean, I even used a three wheel bicycle for training. I got a, uh, it's called a tadpole, two in front, one in back with knobbies. It's uh, kind of a motocross bicycle. And I used it here on the ranch on the motocross course to help train my legs. Um, but I don't know. Um, I don't want to get too deep into the physics, but uh, a motorcycle has a tip-over line. Um, if you draw a line between the front contact patch and the back contact patch, you know, that, that line's called its tip-over line. If you add a third wheel, let's say it's a sidecar to the right or to the left and you're in the UK, then now the sidecar has three tip-over lines. You draw the rear wheel to the sidecar, that's a tip-over line front wheel to the sidecar and the sidecar will tip over in three different ways uh, depending on on how it's being weighted and how it's being driven well a, a trike has a tip over lines same way it's, it's like a triangle and it, uh, with two wheels in front it has tip over lines so when you start thinking about how hard you can push these things and you know what's the difference between turns and so on it just it felt good to me to go with a traditional sidecar outfit 
And uh, with us here in the, U- in the United States, uh, it means that it's on the right. So I made a, a decision based on physics uh, as well as uh, just, you know, based on what I thought it looked like. And where do you go from here? You, you're now driving your sidecar around. What's next? What's the next goal? Well, um, I wanted to do things that I hadn't done before. I mean, I, I was busy working and racing and a lot of family changes, as you can imagine. Uh, and ultimately, I had at one time set a goal to be able to ride around the world. And I had done quite a bit of travel on two wheels, uh, but I hadn't com- completed the circumnavigation of the world. So I said, okay, it's time. So I started training and preparing to finish my around the world trip only on three wheels. Hang on a second. Hang on. You, you've, you've had all this problem and now you're going to take a sidecar around the world? Like this is a huge goal. Let me just ask though, what is your mobility status at this point? Well, um, I finally worked my way down to one brace on the right side below my knee. And I finally worked to be able to walk with one cane on level ground. But on the sidecar, I always carry two so that if I got to do some climbing to get out of a some kind of a spot, uh, uh, either up or down, that I can do it. But uh, basically, I can walk with a cane in one hand and a, a bag in the other. And now you're doing the same thing again. You're saying, round the world trip of the sidecar, what do I need to do? Exactly. Where do I need to go? What's it going to take for visas or carnet? Uh, how am I going to get the bike here or there? Um uh, where am I going to sleep? You know, what am I going to eat? Uh, what am I going to wear? All the stuff that everybody else goes through. And, and, uh, but I got a benefit though. I got a sidecar. I can carry more stuff than other people. Or so I thought I ended up loading my sidecar box up with tools and parts for my bike because I realized that if I broke down somewhere, I had to pretty much fix it myself because I didn't have the mobility to go around shopping for parts or, you know, getting help. I need to be totally self-contained. And, and that was the approach I took in my sidecar box. There's, there's not a car. There's, there's a a box that uh, I have, um, basically a, a minimum 72 hour survival kit. You drop me anywhere on earth and from snow to desert and I'll survive for 72 hours um, pretty good selection of tools, a good selection of parts. And, uh, then, uh, on top of the box is the gear I use from day to day. How long did it take you to do the trip? Well, about two years. I, I'm still traveling a lot. As a matter of fact, uh, I kind of got addicted and now I've got uh, sidecars stashed in, in Europe and, and in South America, but, um, that's a different story. But the, the thing was that I still had, uh, obligations here teaching classes and doing rallies and stuff. So, 
um, like my friends uh, Grant and Susan Johnson say, sometimes you take a vacation with within the vacation. So sometimes I would park the bike, get on an airplane, come home and visit family for Christmas and and uh, spend a little while. And then I go back and, and get the bike out and get it going and take off. So it, it w- I wasn't on the road continuously, uh, but about two years. You mentioned a couple of times, and again, just there about teaching. Where does the teaching part come into this? Well, when when I was back in Southern California uh, as a young racer, and I had made expert, I I wasn't really making any money racing because I wasn't placing up in the money, um, even though I was trying like hell. Uh, and so the part-time job in the motorcycle shop wasn't really – uh, giving me enough money to live on. So on the weekends, I, I had lots of people inviting me to come out to their rallies or their events. And, uh, you know, could I bring my toolbox? And I thought, okay, you just want a mechanic out there. And I said, okay, so I'd go out and they'd pay me to do stuff on their bikes. But then I'd be watching them ride. And it was like, hey, you know, if you do this, it might work better for you. And they'd go out and try it, and they'd come back and say, thanks, that was cool. And, and pretty soon I realized that uh, I could do more for people teaching than fixing their bikes because I, I, I kind of had learned some things. And pretty soon they started, you know, giving me tips and like cash money. And, uh, and pretty soon they started inviting me not to bring my toolbox but to come out and help them learn to ride. And, uh, and so I started teaching and informally. And then I realized that, uh, you know, teaching was a big deal because not everybody can, has the time or the willpower to learn by the school of hard knocks. So I really started working hard on becoming a good teacher and the fire department helped because ultimately when I made captain, they assigned me to become a training officer and sent me to a lot of schools, uh, and teaching firefighters how to do dangerous things is very similar to teach motorcycle riders how to do dangerous things. But when you had your crash, you had to stop teaching, I'm sure, at that point. And then how would you get back into it? Oh, that that was tough because, you know, I, I can't, I couldn't envision somebody to want to learn motorcycle riding or racing from a coach that's in a wheelchair. It's like, huh. You couldn't even keep your own body in one piece. How can we trust you with ours? And, you know, that was the kind of the mental image I had. And I just kept that to myself and I didn't teach. And friends and former students would always come by the ranch and see how I was doing and spend the weekend. Or they'd say, hey, coach, we, we, we're having this problem. What do you think? And got any ideas or how, how we can fix it? So I was, I was still helping people, but not in a formal sense, not teaching classes. And one night I had an extra beer and my tongue was a little loose. And I said, you know, I wish I could get back to teaching. I mean, I just, I really miss you guys. And they said, well, we miss you too. And uh, I said, but yeah. You know, wheelchair, crutches, canes. Um, how's that going to work? And they said, look, 
for years you've been teaching us to take it to the edge. Now you've been on the other side of the edge and you've seen it. Come back to our side and now you can you can give us even more information. You're even more experienced. And I said, well, I'm not sure it's true, but I like the story. <laughs> and anyway, I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. Well, at that time, I was certified by the American Motorcycle Safety Foundation to teach uh, off-road classes. And they came up with this new program that was even more intense uh, that included uh, you know, a lot of obstacles and hills and rocks and, and um, sand and gravel and water crossings and all that stuff. And I said, okay, here's a picture I can work with. If I can pass the certification test for this new Motorcycle Safety Foundation program, then I'm going to start teaching again. And uh, so I started working with sidecars off-road. And ultimately, at that time, I, would, I had bought a, a Russian Ural uh, gear up. I don't know if you've seen pictures of them, but mm -hmm. it's kind of World War II technology. Very cool-looking bikes. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was really amazed. Two-wheel drive. But, you know, when you blip the throttle, there's not a lot there. So you, you really got to drive with technique and poise and not rely on a lot of power. And the single plate dry clutch, you can smoke it in a heartbeat. So you got to be real careful with your left hand. Well, anyway, so I start working on this program to go take this instructor certification class. And uh, I sign up for it, I pay my fees. And I show up in Southern California for the uh, it was a, a six-day program, and uh, everybody's unloading their bikes, and I unload the sidecar with me walking on a cane. And the instructors come out, and they said, uh, 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 you can't take this class. This is for bikes. And I said, well, um, I didn't see that anywhere in, in your information. And they said, well, this is for bikes. And I said, well, as I understand it, the Motorcycle Safety Foundation is a 501c3 organization, which is one of our tax designations, which means that you're subject to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah, can you tell I did my research? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, you have to do something called make reasonable accommodations for disabled people. And uh, that sidecar is a reasonable accommodation. If I can drive that sidecar wherever you take a bike, and if I can do whatever all these other instructors do on a crutches, then you need to test me. And they said, uh, way right here. And they went in and they were on the phone for the longest time. And pretty soon they came back out and they said, uh, welcome to the class. And uh, I took this class on this old Russian Ural and, and uh, I got my certification and never looked back. I've been teaching all around the world ever since, uh, pro racers and amateur riders and adventure riders and anybody that is interested in two world wheels, then I'm interested in you.
What's your life like now? Oh, it's good. Um, we've got a 50-acre training ranch that uh, runs uh, in the good season. Uh, the weather turns good around April, May, so we train pretty hard through about this time of year, October. Uh, we've got uh, some pretty intense training here uh, that goes at everything from you never throwing a leg over a seat of a bike before to uh, extreme enduro. Um, so there's plenty of variety. I'm still doing rallies and things like that, uh, uh, like Grant and Susan for Horizons Unlimited uh, are doing these off-road navigation events now called a hum. Uh, so we're doing classes before that to help folks get ready, working with pro racers at uh, FIM rallies, uh, things like that, uh, trying to stay fit and uh it kind of takes me back to what I said before about having motorcycles stashed all over the world. So if I take a teaching gig, uh, like in the Dakar in South America, I'll go down and, and be with the Dakar. And then I've got my bike there and I'll like this year after Dakar, we traveled up through Argentina, uh, through the Southern jungles of, uh, Brazil, and then back down into Uruguay and ended up on a, 150-year-old cattle ranch in the uh, uh, in Uruguay uh, that still didn't have electricity. We're kind of basically camping out in the same uh, bunkhouse that the cowboys or the vaqueros did for you know decades and eating food from a wood stove. So I mean, it, life is good. You just gotta go get out there and make it happen. How old are you now? 70. And what's your next goal? Huh. Well, next. I mean, there's a list, but how about the next big goal? Okay. Uh, my entry fee is paid for the Alcan 5000 rally in 2018. Wow. I, I did I did that rally the first time that they allowed motorcycles into it uh, back in 2002. And uh, did pretty well. Uh, ended up uh, on the podium, and and it was a fun rally. It it it's not a speed event. It's called a TSD rally, time, speed, distance. So it's it's an endurance event that requires brains and preparation. And so the bike that I used was sponsored by TourTech, uh, uh, and uh, was a BMW 1150 uh, GS, and that was one of the bikes that was out in the shop that I used to talk to when I'd roll out there in my, my wheelchair. And ultimately I, I went out to the shop and I said, uh, we need to have a talk. Um, you're going to get a third wheel. You okay with that? And, uh, I assumed that the bike said yes. And then we put a sidecar on that bike. And that was the bike that I rode, uh, through a lot of my around the world experience. And it's currently in Heidelberg, Germany. And that bike's being shipped back to the United States next month. Uh, and we're going to go through it this winter to get ready for the Alcan in 2018. So the same bike 17 years later and the same rider 17 years later are going to go to the Alcan 5000 again. What's the distance on the Alcan 5000? Well, you'd have to talk to Jerry Hines. 
uh, who's the uh, event promoter, because uh, he's the one that lays out the course and so on. But uh, it's about or very close to, uh, I think, 5,000 kilometers, but it could be 5,000 miles. And just you, you never know. You just show up, and they give you the route sheets every day. And uh, I think this year we're going uh, all or in 2018. It's scheduled to go to the Arctic Circle um, through the back country of Canada and the Yukon, and I think Yellowknife, Whitehorse up in that region, and ultimately to the Arctic Circle. Before I let you go, I really want to ask you about the goals thing. For the average person out there that um, maybe just sort of going through life, doing their thing, do you think that it's important that we all have these goals, that we all set goals like that, that are that are sort of pushing, well, I shouldn't say sort of, because it's not the case for you, but are, are pushing ourselves to the limit? I mean, is, is that what makes your life good right now? Well, no. I, I think we all have to keep our lives in balance. Uh, and so my goals uh, are not my complete life. I mean, I have, uh, uh, you know, obligations and family and and all the other things that everybody else has to be responsible for. Uh, but I think we have to live for ourselves at some point. And, um, you know, unless you're Mother Teresa, uh you have to have some picture in your mind that reminds you that life is really worth living and that all the hard work you're doing is for some benefit to to you. So for me, I think that, uh, you know, this idea of dreaming is great, but a dream doesn't become a goal until it goes on the calendar. just want to wish you, the listeners uh, you know the very best and hopefully you have some dreams that will come true and now I'm moving on to the next phase whatever that is Ramey Stroud, you will be missed, and your voice will be in the heads of those you've taught not only to be better riders, but to face life with an upbeat, can-do attitude, and to challenge our own potentials. I spoke with Coach Ramey on the phone just two weeks before he died. He told me what was happening, and even though he knew it was his life was at the very end, he still took the time to connect with me. And in emails after that phone call, he said he wanted me to have his personal notes and training program so that so that I could carry things on here with Adventure Rider Radio's Rider Skills program and with some of the ideas and concepts he has. And even just 48 hours before his death, he sent me more files. Coach Ramey was that kind of man. Almost every single time I ride, I think of Coach Ramey and the things he's taught me about riding. Lucky for us, We still have the Rider Skills episodes to go back to anytime we need to hear his voice again. 